0: Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Ford whipped down the road at close to 70 miles per hour. It was a June night in 1933 in Wellington, Texas, and Clyde Barrow relished the chance to drive fast just for the fun of it. Bonnie Parker sat in the passenger seat, and a fellow gang member, W.D. Jones, sat in the back. They were all in a good mood. There was no police on their trail. There was no exchange of gunfire. It was just a lovely, moonlit night, and for once, they could relax. But maybe they were too relaxed, or maybe the moon wasn't quite bright enough because none of them saw the detour sign on the side of the road as Clyde's Ford flew past. The car barreled through a wooden barricade and onto an unfinished road. Before Clyde could do anything, the Ford launched a wheel and spiraled toward a ravine. The crash shattered the windshield and jammed the door shut. Clyde and W.D. were stuck, but they were all right. Bonnie wasn't. She screamed as the cracked car battery spewed acid over her leg. Her skin burned and seemed to just fall away. Clyde and W.D. were helpless. All they could do was listen to Bonnie howl and hope she somehow survived. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms. Coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available Relieve sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. From Black Barrel Media, this is Infamous America. I'm your host, Chris Wimmer. In this season, we're telling a six-part story about the notorious outlaws, Bonnie and Clyde. This is Episode 3, Suicide Sound. Bonnie was in jail, and Clyde was wanted for murder. After a botched robbery of a jewelry store led to the killing of the store owner, the Lake Dallas gang had fallen apart. Clyde, who had been waiting in the car at the time, was accused of the murder, and authorities were offering a $250 reward for his capture. He couldn't break Bonnie out of jail in Kaufman, he couldn't break his friend Ralph Foltz out of jail in Wichita Falls, and he'd abandoned his revenge plot to raid Eastham Prism Farm. In May of 1932, Clyde found himself without his gang, without his girlfriend, and without any idea what he was going to do. He engaged in a series of small-time robberies just to keep some money in his pocket, but he wouldn't be able to survive that way for long. Luckily, Clyde wasn't the only one in West Dallas desperate to make a large score. Ray Hamilton was born in a tent outside Shelter, Oklahoma in 1913. Like so many families at the time, the Hamiltons struggled to get by. Work was scarce, and to make things more difficult, Ray's father had a history of abandoning the family in times of need. In 1920, when Ray's father disappeared seemingly for good, Ray's mother moved the family to West Dallas. The 10-year-old Ray was small for his age, so he quickly developed skills to avoid being the target of much larger boys. He was funny and charming and had an ability to blend into his surroundings when necessary. He also had his big brother Floyd to look out for him. Floyd started working at around the age of 14, and he made sure part of his earnings went toward his little brother's welfare. As much as Ray wanted to be like Floyd when he got older, the back-breaking grind of low-wage work wore on him. Ray found more joy in stealing bicycles off the street and engaging in other forms of petty theft. By the time he was 18, Ray had already done time and had already broken out of jail, something he would become famous for in his career. Ray met Clyde Barrow in West Dallas in the 1920s, but the two wouldn't work together until the early 30s. After breaking out of a jail in McKinney, Texas, Ray joined Clyde Barrow for the Lake Dallas gang's first big job, the comically botched robbery of the Sims Oil Refinery. After the refinery, Ray parted with Clyde on less than good terms and headed to Michigan. He tried respectable work again, but it didn't last. In 1932, having been laid off from his job, Ray Hamilton returned to West Dallas He was greeted with some disturbing news. He was wanted for the murder of a jewelry store owner, a crime he knew nothing about. Ray sought out Clyde to figure out what the hell was going on. Clyde told Ray that the police had shown the owner's wife a series of photographs of suspects in the case. The old woman had said she saw Clyde and Ray. That was enough for the police. Ray and Clyde talked over their options. If Ray was wanted for a crime in Texas, he might as well commit a crime in Texas. With murder wraps hanging over their heads, West Dallas was too dangerous for both of them. They were well known there, and it was only a matter of time before the police came calling. They found a small house in Wichita Falls, Texas. With about 140 miles between them and Dallas, they were close enough to make trips to the city to check on family but far enough away to remain off the radar of Dallas police. From their new base, Clyde Barrow and Ray Hamilton made a plan for the future, and what would become known as the Barrow Gang was born. Clyde was ready to get to work, but he badly wanted Bonnie by his side. When Bonnie Parker dreamed of being a poet as a young girl, it's safe to say she didn't picture herself scribbling verses on pieces of scrap paper while sitting in a Kaufman, Texas, jail cell. But in May of 1932, that's where she found herself. One of Bonnie's famous poems to come out of her time in jail is called The Story of Suicide Sal. It gives a glimpse into the life of a woman named Sal and the man she loves, Jack. In the poem, Bonnie writes... I left my old home for the city to play in its mad, dizzy world, not knowing how little of pity it holds for a country girl. There I fell for the line of a henchman, a professional killer from Shy. I couldn't help loving him madly. For him, even now, I would die. Most who've studied the poem find it to be a clear representation of Bonnie's life with and feelings toward Clyde. But when she came before a grand jury in Kaufman on June 17, 1932, it might not have been obvious that she was willing to die for Clyde in the same way Sal was willing to die for Jack. Bonnie testified before the grand jury that she'd been kidnapped by the two men involved with the attempted robbery and shootout in Kaufman. She implied she was just one more victim in the whole CD affair. In reality, Ralph Foltz had told Bonnie to say she was kidnapped right before the two of them were captured by police. Clyde had already escaped and left them behind, so she wouldn't do him any harm in saying he and Ralph forced her into the situation. The story worked. Bonnie was released from jail and went back to her mother's house in Dallas. While she told her mother she no longer wanted anything to do with Clyde, nobody believed it. When Bonnie told her mother she was moving to Wichita Falls for a new job, everyone knew she was really going to reunite with Clyde. Any hope the Parker family had of Bonnie going straight was dashed. Bonnie became a member of the Barrow gang almost immediately, but her role was primarily a passive one. She would accompany Clyde and Ray and others who joined the gang on robberies, but she'd almost always remain in the car. Bonnie was in the car when Clyde and Ray pulled one of their biggest jobs and fully cemented the Barrow Gang in popular culture. The three headed southeast from Wichita Falls and drove over 300 miles to the town of Willis, Texas. Willis lies about 50 miles north of Houston. Like so many of their targets, the first state bank in Willis offered them a major take without having to go to a major city. At about 5 feet 3 inches tall, Ray Hamilton was even shorter than the diminutive Clyde Barrow. The two men knew they weren't physically intimidating, but they used that to their advantage. As they entered the bank, they let their guns speak for themselves, but they were said to be extremely polite and non-threatening to those they were sticking up. They asked everyone in the bank to move into the vault. Everyone obeyed. Once they had their money, Clyde and Ray locked everyone in the vault and casually made their way back to the car where Bonnie was waiting. Locking people in the vault would become Ray's MO when he robbed a bank, either with Bonnie and Clyde or on his own. The tactic gave them a huge head start. By the time anyone in town realized what was going on and the people in the vault had been freed, the Barrow gang was long gone. The first state bank robbery proved to be a massive success. They'd come away with several thousand dollars, and the glaring mistakes of past jobs seemed to be behind them. The Barrow Gang was gaining notoriety around the state. Amidst their latest triumph and slowly burgeoning fame, Clyde and Ray almost forgot they were wanted for murder. But that would all change when the boys took a detour to do a little dancing in Oklahoma. Bonnie wanted to see her mother. Emma Parker wished her daughter hadn't gone back with Clyde, but that didn't keep the two of them from remaining close. Both Bonnie and Clyde did their best to stay in touch with their families, and they shared what money they could with family members who were struggling to stay afloat during the Depression. That said, Emma Parker wanted nothing to do with Clyde Barrow, so he dutifully dropped Bonnie off in West Dallas and then headed out into the night with Ray Hamilton and their friend Ross Dyer. Ray claimed he never killed anyone. Through all the bank robberies, holdups, and jailbreaks in his career, he said he never took another person's life. He was proud of that. Before he died, though, he told his big brother Floyd that there might have been one exception. It was the night of August 5th, 1932, in Stringtown, Oklahoma. Ray told Floyd... Clyde and I were both shooting. It could have been either one of us, or both. Clyde, Ray, and Ross crossed the Red River into Oklahoma. The music from Stringtown was unmistakable as they drove past. Glancing out the window, they saw a setup for an outdoor party not far from the highway. Musicians played while couples danced. Other locals could be seen talking, drinking, and just having a good time. Clyde would later say it was Ray's idea to pull off the road and join the fun, but others suggested all three men were looking for a party. Bonnie was with her mother and there were no jobs to pull, so drinking and dancing could be a nice distraction. Prohibition wouldn't come to an end in the United States until December of 1933, more than a year after that night in Stringtown. While alcohol was prohibited, people could still manage to find their share of moonshine, or home-brewed beer. In several small towns in the South and Southwest, local law enforcement was more than happy to look the other way when it came to a law they felt was unjust. As long as people weren't hurting anyone, why not let them have a little bit of happiness in a time often filled with heartbreak and loss? That was how Atoka County Sheriff Charlie Maxwell saw it anyway. Sheriff Maxwell and Deputy Eugene Moore were at the dance to enjoy the music and to be on hand in case any fights broke out. Reports of the night's events varied depending on who was telling the story. When Clyde recounted things to Bonnie and his parents, he painted himself as a sober saint who sat quietly in the car while the other two caused trouble. But witnesses suggested Clyde, Ray, and Ross had all been drinking and trying to get some of the local girls to dance with them which didn't sit well with the local boys. When the musicians took a break, Clyde and Ray headed back to the car, most likely to keep drinking. But Ross stayed out on the dance floor, waiting for the music to pick back up again. Some of the locals complained about the behavior of the three strangers. Sheriff Maxwell sensed things could go bad pretty quickly, so he decided to step in. He'd tell the boys from out of town they were under arrest. Getting them out of there might save them from getting beat up by the local boys. Sheriff Maxwell approached Clyde and Ray's car, not knowing the two men inside were wanted for murder in Texas. The sheriff leaned into the car to tell them they were under arrest. Clyde and Ray knew that if they got caught, there was a good chance they'd end up in the electric chair in Huntsville. Clyde opened fire. Bullets hit Sheriff Maxwell in the chest. He flew back and fell to the ground. He was badly wounded, but he wasn't dead. Deputy Moore rushed to the scene, firing his weapon. Clyde and Ray were already out of the car, spraying bullets at the oncoming deputy. At least one hit him cleanly, and Deputy Eugene Moore crumpled to the ground. His body twitched. It was the last jolt of movement before he died. Clyde and Ray fled the chaos. They stole a series of cars along the way made it back to Dallas, and grabbed Bonnie. Ross Dyer had tried to run on foot, but he didn't get far. He was caught and questioned. He gave up his friends, and soon a massive search for Clyde Barrow and Ray Hamilton was underway. They'd killed a police officer. There was no staying in Dallas. There was no staying in Texas. Ray headed back to Michigan, and the latest version of the Barrow gang disbanded. Bonnie and Clyde were almost constantly on the run for the rest of 1932 and into the early months of 1933. Along with W.D. Jones, they crossed state borders and slept in cars, or spent the night in tiny rooms constantly looking out the windows for police. Texas newspapers started to cash in on the murderous fugitive couple. Articles across the state embellished every aspect of their lives, They were great bank robbers and hardened cop killers, the papers claimed. Fame had come for Bonnie and Clyde, but it only made staying hidden more difficult. Finally, Bonnie and Clyde had an idea. They could go to Missouri and just live their lives for a while. They had some money saved, and they could stop running. After a long discussion, they convinced Clyde's brother Buck and his wife Blanche to join them. Since being out of prison, Buck had given up his life of crime and he'd promised Blanche he'd never go back to it. Bonnie and Clyde told them they wouldn't involve them in anything illegal in Missouri. Secretly, Buck hoped he could convince Clyde to turn himself in and thought maybe spending time together in Missouri would give him the chance he needed. The two bedroom apartment in Joplin, Missouri almost felt like home. Bonnie was happy to have another woman around and she and Blanche grew closer. Clyde spent much of his time planning for the future. The thought of raiding Eastham Prison Farm had found its way back into his mind, and he was having trouble letting it go. W.D. Jones made the trip with them, but he hadn't fully left his criminal ways behind. He still managed to steal a car or two in Joplin. For almost two weeks, the group ate dinners together, played cards together, and acted like a lot of average American families. But Bonnie and Clyde, like their poetic counterparts Sal and Jack, weren't destined for an average American life. They didn't know it, but local police had grown suspicious of the five out-of-towners in the two-bedroom apartment. The cops didn't know who the new residents were, but they believed they were up to no good. On April 13th, 1933, police showed up at the apartment in Joplin just as Clyde and W.D. were pulling one of their cars out of the garage. One of the officers drew his gun and headed for the garage. Before he could get there, a shotgun fired and he fell to the ground bleeding. He was dead before anyone could help him. Police scattered and then returned fire. A shootout raged and W.D. got hit. He was bleeding badly. Buck joined the fight and both he and Clyde got shot. Clyde was hit with a small caliber bullet that did almost no damage. But when he saw Buck bleeding, he thought for a second he'd gotten his brother killed. Luckily, Buck's wounds were manageable and he continued to fight on. The police had them pinned down. Clyde knew they'd either die or get caught if they waited any longer. He rallied the group into the car, hit the gas, roared out of the garage, slammed through a car on the driveway, and sped out of Joplin as fast as he could. Days later, they found themselves back in Texas. No matter where they went, it was as if the Lone Star State would always call them home. They were bruised and battered, but they were alive. After a short time, they even thought they'd managed to disappear. Last anyone had heard, this latest version of the Barrow Gang was based in and around Missouri. Maybe Texas would be all right for them for a while. But then on June 10th, 1933, Clyde missed the detour sign on the side of the road in Wellington, Texas. That night, he sent his Ford careening through the air and into a ravine below. Thankfully, some locals who were out on their porch saw the whole thing happen. They rushed to the wreckage and pulled Clyde and W.D. out relatively unscathed. They managed to rescue Bonnie, too, but she was badly hurt. Acid from the car battery had done unimaginable damage to her leg. At that moment, any hope of Bonnie and Clyde remaining hidden was gone. Photographs played an indelible role in the Great Depression. The United States government, through the Resettlement Administration and later the Farm Security Administration, hired photographers to capture images of Americans struggling to survive. The picture showed men, women, and children with heads held high in the face of adversity. They showed people with nowhere to sleep but the street. They showed the devastation of the dust storms on ranches and farms in Oklahoma. The photos of everyday people fighting against man-made and natural obstacles went a long way in convincing wealthy Americans that the Great Depression was, indeed, real, and that people needed help from their countrymen. Hundreds of articles had already been written about the situation, and President Franklin Roosevelt addressed it frequently. But it was the pictures that finally moved many to action, because photos in the 1930s served as proof. If you saw something in a photograph, there was no denying it and pictures of Bonnie and Clyde had the same effect. After the Barrow gang fled the apartment in Joplin, Missouri, police searched it, and they found several photographs of Bonnie and Clyde. The pair had taken the pictures just to have some fun, but the photos quickly came to define Bonnie and Clyde's national image. In one photograph, Bonnie leaned against a car with her hip cocked out, She had a cigar in her mouth and a gun in her hand. Newspapers printed it and commented on how unladylike she must be. They said the gun proved she was a cold-blooded killer. No one would believe that Bonnie Parker actually didn't smoke cigars and rarely carried a weapon. Another photograph showed Bonnie pointing a shotgun at Clyde. The two of them were playing around when the photo was taken but some members of the newspaper business decided this gave insight into what must be their violent relationship. Along with the pictures, the police found a collection of Bonnie's poetry. One poem in particular, the story of Suicide Sal, captured the nation's imagination. In it, readers saw a woman willing to kill and die for her lover. It had all the action and sex appeal of a tawdry movie the people didn't want to admit they enjoyed watching. At the end of her poem, Bonnie Parker tells of the brutal demise of its heroine, Sal. Not long ago, I read in the paper that a gal on the east side got hot, and when the smoke finally retreated, two of gangdom were found on the spot. It related the colorful story of a jilted gangster gal. Two days later, a sub gun ended THE STORY OF SUICIDE SAL As Bonnie's leg burned down to the bone on the side of the road in Wellington, Texas, she might have thought she was meeting her end like Sal. In reality, she escaped the incident with her life. Like Clyde, after his toes were chopped off, she would have trouble walking and would endure regular bouts of pain. But that would seem easy compared to what was coming. Bonnie's poems often confronted the fact that she and Clyde wouldn't live long. They were prophetic that way. That night in Wellington, splayed out beside the wreckage of the Ford, Bonnie had less than one year to live. The national fame the pair were gaining made it almost impossible for them to hide. Soon, the ride would end. Bonnie and Clyde both knew it. The least they could do was give the papers a few more salacious headlines for it was all said and done. Next time on Infamous America, Clyde finally carries out his raid on Easton Prism Farm. He gets his revenge and breaks out Ray Hamilton in the process. Buck Barrow departs the gang, and Bonnie and Clyde seek help from one of the most famous criminals in the country. That's next week on Infamous America. This season was co-executive produced by Stephen Walters, in association with Ritual Productions. Research and writing by Michael Federico. The theme song for this season is the story of Bonnie and Clyde. The lyrics were adapted from the poem, The Trail's End, by Bonnie Parker, and the music was written and produced by Brian Ray. The song was performed by Brian Ray, Oriente Penegaris, and Stephen Pack. It was recorded at Bad Manor Studio by Jose Alcantar. Additional original music by Rob Valier. Audio editing and sound design by Dave Harrison. I'm your host and producer, Chris Wimmer. Find us at our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, or on our social media channels. We're Black Barrel Media on Facebook and Instagram, and B Media on Twitter. And you can stream all our episodes on YouTube, Just search for Infamous America Podcast. Thanks for listening.